Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to Inside Cyber Diplomacy. Between the two of us, I think we know almost everyone involved in cyber diplomacy. And the idea behind this is really to have frank conversations with those leaders in this area and bring that to the rest of the world, this new area of diplomacy, and talk to these leaders about what's going on. Our plan is that you'll hear things on this podcast that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Frank, not scripted, direct conversations. Hope you like it. I know we will. So please listen in. Welcome to another episode of Inside Cyber Diplomacy. We're very fortunate today to have as our guest, Ambassador Jörg Lauber, uh, who is currently Switzerland's representative to Geneva, which seems odd, but we're still grateful to have him on very much. And of course, he has some relevant experience that we'll talk about. So Jörg, thank you for doing this. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Well, it's it's obviously good to have you. you I'm sure you've been uh, taking some vacation, relaxing a little bit. Obviously, the the big thing that just happened was the uh, conclusion of the open-ended working group and and the report. And uh, congratulations on that. I, I guess the the first question is that you know when the open-ended working group was agreed to in the UN and the competing or seemingly competing group of governmental experts, there was a lot of you know, doom and gloom, that these were conflicting, these would never be able to reach a conclusion, you'd never be able to get anywhere with 193 countries, that we would backslide on some of the commitments made in the prior groups of governmental experts on things like international law. None of that really came true, and a large part because of the, you know, your stewardship of this. But when you took this job, let's go back, you know, now two years. <laughs> when you took this, what were you thinking? You didn't really have a cyber background, you're getting into this. How did, how did you look at this? <laughs> Maybe that helped. Uh, yeah, let me start with a confession. I don't understand anything about cyber. No, that's an overstatement, but I'm certainly not an expert. I'm certainly not an ICT expert. Um, I've done a few uh, processes, multilateral processes in the past, but on, on, on completely different issues. So I watched, of course, because I was in New York at the time, I was the, the permanent representative in New York, so I watched what happened uh, particularly in the first committee, but, but only from a distance, to be honest. And I think in hindsight, that was probably an advantage. So I, I knew that the history of the open-ended working group was complicated, that the discussion around the resolution that established the open-ended working group was controversial. And of course, I knew about the tensions, but uh, many things I, at that point, I didn't realize. And I, I think that that helped in the end. You know, I, I think uh, it, it allowed me to go into this, not naive, probably, hopefully. Uh, I was aware of the different positions, that there were uh, uh, strong um, opinions on, on certain issues. But I, I wasn't burdened by any bad experience or all the history. I didn't have that kind of baggage. It allowed me uh, to take a fresh approach, which was also necessary and, I think, which was the great opportunity of this new format to bring in new people and work together with those who had all the experience, but take a, a real fresh approach. At the end, what were the hard issues that you had to pull together? Because that's usually how it goes in the negotiation. What were the ones that you really had to stitch together to get agreement? The real key thing was the question on 
would we be able to reconfirm that normative framework that had been developed over the last 20 years? And then would we be able to still have some elements in the report that would give an orientation to the future and also take some sort of note of the many opinions and desires and ambitions of the delegations, in, in particular, many delegations who came in anew. The approach that we, we chose, we collectively, not, not my approach, uh, but uh, with the help of the member states, to have two parts of the report. The first part, the consensus part, that, and there again, that everybody came together and agreed to reconfirm the framework and, and add a few interesting elements. And then the second part that took into account all of these ideas that had been discussed and put forward. So every delegation, I think, had a way of feeling that were, they were taken serious. You know, we have an idea, we have priorities, we have concerns, we want them somehow reflected, even if it's not a consensus yet, but we want them in the paper. And I, I think that helped. That chair summary, I guess, is that second document that you're, you're mentioning. And, you know, there are pros and cons of having that document. As you say, it allows you to express things that couldn't be, consensus couldn't be reached on. So there were a lot of, I think, forward-leaning things in there. There were also some things that people found either controversial or objectionable. So I guess one question is, the consensus report obviously has some, some weight going forward. How do you think the chair summary will be treated in, say, I don't know, the new GG, the new open-ended working group that's that's starting relatively soon or other processes? Is this going to be something that's going to inform them or is it going to have more status, do you think? I hope it will be some material to inform them and, and also be like a, a resource collection. If you look at what happened over these 18 months, almost two years, and both of you were, were very much involved, I think there's two things. First, we had a much wider range of people participating in discussions in the past so for many of them it was a was a learning experience you know now we are dealing with this on, a, on another diplomatic level and and then secondly many of these delegations brought issues to the table that maybe were discarded by a, a more focused more expert group or, or were not even there yet it's the beginning of a, of a new process uh, or of a new approach, of a new diplomatic approach, a new level diplomatic approach to this. And I think we, we all were aware that uh, this would somehow have to continue. How it exactly is going to go, we will see. How the new open-ended working group will develop, how they will structure the discussions, what issues they will focus on. But now we have a, a fairly large compendium of opinions, proposals. We also have, you know, the you remember the report on the intersessional stakeholder meeting, an excellent report by David Cohen. There's a lot of material. And because many of the delegations are not expert delegations, they don't have huge resources at their hand. They don't have resource staff. Now you have it very neatly in one UN document so they can refer to that. And I would like to think that they're fairly well equipped if they take this to the next level, uh, to the next round of negotiations. And maybe even, you know, in, in regional or national settings, I think the awareness that individual member states, they need to deal with this issue. They may need to develop national policies to deal with the issues here again. It's, of course, not conclusive and not sufficient, but it's a start. It's, it's more than what they had. I, I really hope that that will serve them well to inform them future negotiations and, and even internal national development of policies. 
of the new countries, the countries that hadn't been in a GGE, which countries impressed you the most or stood out as growing rapidly? I, from the few I saw, some of the African countries, some of the yeah. uh, South American countries, am amazing talent. It's not a fair question to ask a diplomat who's responsible <laughs> for all 193, but when you look back, you know, in general, I, I was really impressed by the level of participation in numbers, mm. um, but then also in seriousness and in quality. You know, many delegations were there for the first time, but it was a reflection of, I think, the realization that this is an issue which concerns every, of, every one of us. We have to deal with this. And then what we also thought, I thought was very interesting, I felt that there was a new generation of diplomats. And I, I say this with all due respect to our age group here around the table today. <laughs> We're not honest, offended. <laughs> um, let's be honest. I mean, we, we saw young, and you remember we had this program, we, I mean, the, I think Canada, the Netherlands, some Scandinavian countries supported this program for young female cyber diplomats. Yeah. And through that program, we had... A number of young colleagues coming from the Caribbean, from Africa, from other regions. And I was, I thought that was fantastic. They brought a, a new approach, they brought the new energy. They 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 of course, um, at least compared to me, again, I'm not a specialist, they dealing with the technology is, is much more natural. I I, will, I was very impressed by that. So I I, I was excited about that. Is there a way? I mean, I think you're right that there was a lot more participation. But still, some countries were there but didn't participate a lot. You know, what would you do going forward to get even more, I guess, participation and understanding of these issues among a lot of the countries who haven't really been core to these discussions before? No, I, I can tell you what I did. Uh, what we did already is we really, outside the actual meetings, we did a very serious effort of reaching out. You know, I, I was... Of course, it, it helped me a lot that I had been in New York several years already by the time I took over this job. And I had, as I said, in previous negotiations already done this uh, go meet, like, um, for instance, the Pacific Island Forum. You know, these are usually very small delegations, uh, two or three people, super diplomats, but it's just the day has 24 hours, the week has seven days. But when you go out and you explain to them what, what we're doing, the approaches we're taking, why this is important to them, and, and then they come and they participate and they find a voice. Or the person who would keep, will continue, if I, have an, if I could give an advice, I would continue doing that. And then we talked a lot about capacity building throughout uh, these negotiations. I really believe that is key. And countries who have the possibilities through bilateral contacts, through regional organizations, there are, I mean, Chris, you and your organization, I think you're doing great jobs reaching out to these, to these countries and helping them build up capacity. This definitely has to continue. I was struck by how many countries raise capacity building as a foundational issue, both developed countries, but many developing countries who said this is something we need. And, and aside from all the debates about norms and accountability and international law, that was a, a core thing that many of them raised, which I thought was interesting. And your listening tour, as you called it, I thought was was really good. You went out to, you went to the African Union, you went to the yeah. OAS, you went really around the world with your counterpart. Yeah. Uh, and the GGE, which I thought was very interesting. Um, yeah, he was kind enough. Ambassador Patriota, the, the chair of GGE, he had it in his mandate to do these consultations with the regional groups, and, and he was uh, he immediately understood the importance of that, and then and invited me to come along. It was a great opportunity 
to meet the, the regional groups. That was a perfect start for me. And I think it helped me also, again, to encourage them to participate in the process. Was there ever a point where you thought, well, this is over, it's toast, I can't possibly salvage this? <laughs> for, for Jim, always for optimistic. Jim, for Jim, that's all the time, so. <laughs> but there were, there were moments there when the bus appeared to be tipping over. Yeah. Oh, God. You know, I I mean, it's, uh, how can I say, I, I, can't, I can't pinpoint a particular moment, but I, not soon after we started, I my respect for the task increased by the week. I mean, it's, oh God, okay, this is really challenging. And then you realize that uh, basically, you know, every sentence, every verb, every expression has is loaded in the sense that it has a history, that it has been discussed, it has been negotiated. And, and, and if you want to push uh, the envelope a little bit, you there is, oh, no, but, you know, this has been, oh, five years ago, this was a big issue. And, oh, 10 years ago, this broke the negotiations. How constrained uh, uh, we were. And, no, I, I can tell you, I had, uh, I wouldn't, not sleepless nights, but I, I felt the tension. I felt it very much. Well, there's this, this old diplomatic phrase, and nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. And that last session was obviously a key one uh 24 hours before the adoption these interesting times <laughs> <laughs> you said that one of the great achievements of the consensus report is that it essentially endorsed the key but at a high you know at a more involved level of the 193 countries and so that was significant in itself and there was no backsliding but you also said there were some other things that were achieved what, what other things do you think got achieved beyond endorsing what came before you know, in, in gradually, we were still able to develop a bit on the framework. When, when you think about the discussions we had on the threats, you know, like the discussion we had on, on recent developments. So everybody agreed that, not least in the context of the COVID, the attacks we see on medical facilities, on, on research facilities, that that is a, is a real problem. That has been, that was reflected in the report. Um, the relation between international law and the norms has been reconfirmed again. I think that was important precisely also given because we had so many more participants. I think the the way we structured the process, the, you heard me keep saying the, the thing about inclusivity, and this was reflected in the report also, you know, the importance of the stakeholders. I, I would like to think that was a, an important progress. These are, are some of the elements in, in the consensus part, you know, to, just to say that, yes, the reconfirmation, the fact that we were able to reconfirm. And let's not forget, it's been six years since we had a consensus on the issue in, in the UN. So bringing the delegations mm -hmm. together, plus doing this with 193, this alone, I think, was an achievement. But beyond that, we were able... Gradually, I, I agree, not, no breakthroughs, no, no, no big steps, but in a few points, we were able to make the, the progress. So the UN asked me after the one GGE failed to reach consensus, they asked me what would I recommend? And one of the recommendations I had was that picking a chair who was a skilled diplomat, don't let this go to your head. But um, <laughs> picking a chair who is a skilled diplomat, you don't need to know about cyber. You know how to negotiate. You know how multilateral diplomacy works. So I, I think when I look at both you and Ambassador Patriota under Secretary General Nakamitsu took my advice there. But what advice would you give to your successors? 
I understand you've already declined the opportunity to chair the next <laughs> OEWG. It's a sad loss for the international community, but thinking of the next chair or the next couple chairs, what would you tell them? What should you're, they focus on? You're, you're very kind, Jane. Thank you very much. You know oh, no, I, I was not betting on you when you inherited this. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's important also to keep perspective. There are so many factors that fall into place. And there is a, a very large dose of good luck also involved. But I, I tell you some of the factors I think that help, uh, and not in a, in a particular order. But one factor was the support team that the UN itself put together. You know, we diplomats like to complain about the secretariat. I'm there is a reason. But in this case, we had a superb team of people, very small, but a superb team of people helping us. I mean, I had a few people from my own mission uh, helping me, but in addition to that, uh, the people from UNODA, people from UNIDA, some others, Jim, you know them well, uh, who, had, uh, who were part of the team. I felt super well supported. They had a lot of experience. The text we came up with uh, in the end, that's, that's their product. They had all the, the history, they had the, the sensitivity, they knew what things would work or not. That's one. The technical support we got. You know, the circumstances under which we had to meet in the last session, this combination of hybrid and virtual. So that the switch from before to during COVID, great support again from the UN. So, so that was one. And another reason I think that helped us enormously was that in general, I think the mood was just better than we expected. You know, we even in particular, as diplomats, we looked at the geopolitical tensions and they were a challenge. But at the same time, it turns out that everybody at this point in time got serious and said, we have a huge challenge and we need to find a way of dealing with this before it gets worse. And, you know, this report is not the solution. And th what happens at the UN will not solve it, but it's one part of the puzzle. And because the delegations ultimately made up their mind and said, no, we need to we need to come together again. We need to rebuild consensus. We need to agree on something. And then uh, that gives us a basis for, con for continuing. I think so many elements were important, much, much more than just what the chair did or, or, or didn't do. Advice to the next person, take this into account and try to cover as many bases as possible. I thought your advice was going to be run for the hills, but uh, <laughs> or, or take a stiff drink every once in a while. <laughs> um, it's interesting. We we've done some of the other podcasts we've done. Uh, you know, we talked, for instance, to Michelle Markoff, and she mentioned that one thing that was interesting was that there was agreement between the U.S. and China to make sure that the norms and other things were faithfully included in this. And that's interesting that you have, you know, even countries who have lots to disagree about can come together on, on some of these things. You know, one of the things that at least from an outside observer and probably from an inside observer seemed to be the hardest of all the issues was, uh, and I say this as a recovering lawyer, and I understand you also have a law degree. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so you're a recovering lawyer too was trying to make any progress on international law. Do you see any way to, to move that forward that, you know, there, there was some good statements endorsing what had happened before, but is there a way to, to move that discussion forward in the future that you see in the UN? You know, honestly, the reconfirmation of the applicability of international law, the fundamentals, I think that is already a very positive thing given the 
the general discussions, and I'm not just talking ICT, you know, wherever you look, applicability of international law is, is not a given these days. So I think that by itself is positive. But then we also heard many delegations say we need to further develop. They, they don't find current existing international law sufficient. They want to see done more. There was no agreement on this, but I think in future discussions, we at least have to hear each other out and hear each other's arguments. Those who want better implementation, more practice-oriented approaches, those who feel we need to develop international law, and then needs at one point it needs agreement whether we want to develop or not. But I, I think we need to be open to hear everybody and to take everybody's concerns and priorities into account and continue the discussion of that. I, I can't I don't know where the solution is, honestly. Do we need or do we or we don't do we not need more specific legally binding rules? But I think the discussion that the ask to have a discussion about this is a fair ask and we should face it. I actually agree with Andre Krutsky. I just think we're very far from getting to the point where we can have a binding agreement, and it may never come to that point. But one of the things that I think you brought to the the role was your negotiating experience in other areas in the UN. You chaired other big things. What did you find valuable from that experience of work? This might have been the biggest UN conclave you oversaw, but it was not the first. Yeah, it's hard to say because, you know... You never, in the end, you never know what worked. But what I, I think maybe two things that I felt were appreciated by the delegations and that helps them in the end to come together. One is I've always tried to be totally transparent in what I was intending to do in terms of next steps of the process, how I want to organize the process, when we're going to do meetings, what we're going to talk about. Um, how delegations can participate. And then also in terms of text, I've, I've said, although several didn't believe me, but I said from the beginning, I will keep the pen. I will listen to you and then we will go back and we will write new proposals. And But I also was always very transparent what's going to go in and what, again, and until the end. I think this, this transparency maybe helped. The second is again the reaching out to delegations what i like to call retail diplomacy you know you you reach out between the meetings outside the meetings with the goal of on the one hand better understand where the delegations come from what is what are your real concerns and you need to do that outside the meetings you know and we all know in meetings we say things because we talk to whatever audience but then in in one-on-one contact Sometimes they can, sometimes they can't tell you what really is behind, but to make an effort. And then, and then, then the second element is, again, every delegation deserves to feel, be taken serious. And I, I think that was a huge investment. I did a lot of that, but my colleagues on expert level that did that a lot. And that it took a lot of time and, 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 and resources, but I think it, that was worth it. So, so be, be completely open in what you do explain it and then do what you said you didn't do and try to reach out and have a direct contact with the delegations to really understand what they need, what they want. This is really like a masterclass in diplomacy. I mean, we may send this to the State Department and tell them that it's 
Well, I mean, that was made more difficult, though, as you know, because you, you thought this would be done in a year. You thought you would be meeting in person and have that chance to do the side meetings with people, which, in fact, you did during the physical meetings. But COVID intervened, as it did with most things. You know, how did you handle that extra degree of difficulty? Things were delayed. It was harder to have real discussions with people, that kind of retail diplomacy you talked about. You got lots and lots of, God, huge numbers of written submission from people that you had to try to put together. How did you deal with all that really unprecedented level of difficulty? And also on the maybe positive side, the fact COVID and the dependence on these technologies, that made people maybe take that more seriously in terms of attacks on health systems. So how did that all work in terms of your your handling of these negotiations? I totally agree with you on that last point. And, you know, in, in hindsight, but again, knowing that it worked in the end, but in <laughs> hindsight, it was in a way... I mean, it was a it was an obstacle because, as everybody, as on everything else, you you didn't know what's going to happen, and you just had to make assumptions and take decisions on what you saw immediately. So when we, you, you remember, we postponed the Zoom meeting like two or three times, hoping, yeah, it's going to be fine in two months. It's going to be fine in another two months. Then we switched to the virtual format delayed again and you know that you also remember when we said that the third session has to happen in physical presence it's not possible to have it in another way and then suddenly i realized it's we can't postpone it anymore people are fed up they're tired they won't finish this we finished it in this bizarre virtual hybrid format so in a way plus the timing was lucky in a sense that we had two sessions and we had the intersessional meeting that gave me, but also the delegations, a bit of time still to get to know each other yeah. and to meet physically in, in, in New York, in the corridors, in the regional meetings that you, that you mentioned. And this was apparently enough then to have the level of trust we all needed, the delegations towards me, the, the delegations between themselves to switch to the virtual format. And then... The virtual format also gave us additional time. You know, we had, I can't remember how many rounds, but we had many, many rounds of virtual discussions, uh, which are, I agree, of course, not ideal. Also, you know, for all these poor people in Australia who have to stay up until three o'clock in the morning and, and, and everything and the bad connections and etc. But still, we had more time to discuss the issues for those who hadn't been in the discussions in the negotiations before to understand the issues. So all in the all, I would say, as much as it was an obstacle, it also turned out in, in a positive way that uh, we were able to to get the best out of it and, and still have a result. Yeah, Johanna Weaver is probably one of the yeah. unsung stars of this I negotiation agree. and we, we intend yeah. to have her on uh, a future event. It, there is this time problem. Right? She's, it's either one in the morning for her or one in the morning for us. So sort of about two-thirds of the way through, I think you, you probably knew this, but some countries were concerned that you wouldn't reach consensus, and so they created an alternate platform. And, you know, the Russians, of course, have put forward an OEWG. The Americans and others might propose another GGE, although I, I don't know. But you've got this thing called the program of action, which I saw as kind of the lifeboat if the OEWG hadn't worked. What would you say to the program of action? Where should they focus their work? And knowing that these things, if you look at the small arms one, they'll take years. Uh, it's a much slower pace. But what are your expectations for the POA? What would you advise them? 
you know, I felt, and I would be interested also to hear you, but I felt in the final discussions we had in, in the last session and in maybe in the virtual exchanges before, a strong desire from many delegations to go back to a one-track approach, to have to continue the discussion in a UN context, but mm. to have one track. This is understandable because many delegations of the 193, uh, the vast majority just doesn't have the resources to, to follow. It's already hard enough for them to follow this issue because it's a challenging and a complicated issue. But then do this on several tracks, it, it's difficult. And what they also don't want, what I think there's a fear with many, they don't want to be excluded. They want to be, they know it's important for us. We want to have a, we want to know what's going on. That surprised me, the strong desire of many, many countries to be involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. again, as I said, yeah, I, I thought I didn't expect that huge interest in the beginning. So if there's a way of having the discussion around a program of action, which I think is a, is a very positive initiative because it's, it's practical, it's, it's concrete, within the new open-ended working group, if they find a way to give it space, that would probably be ideal for most delegations. I guess one of the issues, and this this goes to the program of action too, you, you were an innovator in the sense that, you know, there was a lot of push to have other stakeholders involved. You mentioned this earlier, that, you know, obviously the UN is something that's built for states. This is the first committee thing. So usually states are the ones who negotiate. But there was, you know, a lot of pressure to include the private sector, civil society groups, academia, others who are keenly interested in this area. And the UN's a hard format to do that. But you did do some things that I think were unprecedented from the UN. Now, I think the, a lot of those groups had argued they'd like more access and, and more impact. What engendered you to do that? How do you think that went? You know, your, the special session you did, the kind of request for comments, the meeting with these groups, uh, all of those things. What drove you to say, this is something I have to do? And then how do you think that, that turned out? And and, and yeah. in the program of action, how or the next open-ended working group, how would you like to see that evolve? Personally, I feel it's crucial to continue that. Um, I've said you heard me say this several times. I mean, and you would know it much better than I do. The technology we are talking about is ninety plus percent developed in in the private sector, so we cannot seriously, as diplomats, pretend to be able to regulate the technology if we don't talk to the people who developed the technology. And then uh, there is all the, you know, the annex issues which are dealt with by, by civil society or where civil society um, has interesting things to, to say. And I, I feel many make the case for themselves in this process by using the opportunities we had. We most have had to be informal because uh, the constraints we know, but they were very serious. They participated in very serious ways, made, made good contributions. And I think it's to the advantage of, of member states when we allow this to continue. The intercessional, intercessional uh, stakeholder meeting, I can be so enthusiastic about because I wasn't really, it wasn't my doing, to be honest. You know, we had it, we had it in the mandate. I don't, I don't even know who slipped it in the mandate, uh, which delegation, a group of delegation, but it was brilliant to have it in the mandate. And then again, I, I think the secretariat did a fantastic job bringing uh, different categories of participants from all parts of the world uh, to the meeting. 
member states luckily took the opportunity to be in the meeting. And I honestly still have to say, I've barely ever seen, probably never seen before, this level of exchange between member states and stakeholders. I thought it was fantastic, uh, fantastic two days. And then on top of it, we had uh, David Cole, the chief executive of uh, Singapore Cyber Authority and his team doing a, a wonderful job chairing this meeting and, and coming up with an excellent report. So uh, I'm gushing about it because it was great and, and I, it was not my responsibility. So it's, <laughs> but it, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a template. It should be a template. I think we should repeat this. It was, it was a great success. Is there a way to overcome, as you know, there, there, I won't name who they are, but there were some member states who were not that happy with that idea and tried to kind of separate the formal and informal parts of it. Is that just a temporary thing? Is there a way to overcome that in the future to try to make this more broad-based in the UN, or is this just going to be a sticking point? And maybe yeah, to build on that, what's the UN role? How do you think it's going to evolve? Because you have these non-state actors the people Chris are talking about felt very strongly that the UN and the negotiation should be governments only. And there's, of course, pressure on the other side. How do you see the UN role evolving? I mean, you know, I've seen, I've been in this business for a long time. And I, uh, if I compare, you know, we all, I think we have a collective memory of how it was 20, 25 years ago when NGO was a bad word. <laughs> and we've come a long way, you know, uh, inclusion of civil society has made a lot of progress, not in all the areas, it's the same level, not in all setups, it's the same level. Uh, Chris, you mentioned it first committee, heart, you know, heart security issues are probably the, the most difficult for many member states. But we've seen progress and I, there's nothing that makes me believe that future progress shouldn't be possible. I also respect that at one point member states want to preserve the right to take up, it's also their responsibility, so they should have to rate the right to decide that there is a, we have to delineate also, I, I agree with that. But I think um, we, we will see further progress. Plus there's also, another, I've said this many times to civil society during this process, let's be creative. I mean, of course it would be nice to be in the same meeting all the time and it will also be a sign of respect to the, to the contributions of civil society, not least now with this new technology meeting possibilities, platforms we have. The point is, in the end, to get the point across, to get your proposals, your arguments, your concerns, your priorities across. And there is many, many ways of doing that. And, and I think with, with many of the informal meetings we had, we were able to do that. We were able to include uh, ideas from civil society in parts of the report. Let's think creatively and, and, and make sure that positions are, are out there. One thing I've noticed is that, it, particularly in sometimes on the corporate side, if you, you know, like the Munich Security Conference or something, there's an impatience with the process of diplomacy. Do you think this is something we need to strengthen, the, the understanding of how it actually works? Sovereign states are not corporations and they're not NGOs. So what would you do to, to make it a smoother process? Maybe it needs a bit more disruption instead of smoothness. You know, in, in oh. disruption in the sense that we need to bring these communities together, and that's still a huge challenge. Let's be honest. You know, we we've been talking in the UN about partnerships and cooperation with outside actors for a long time. We're not great at it, but uh, I think we need to we need to work on that. And then it's up to individual 
groups, actors, member states to create platforms, opportunities for exchange. And I think we need more of that. We need more discussions with the private sector, the private sector telling us, uh, you guys are too slow, technology is so fast. And uh, states telling them, yes, but if you want a solution that really holds up, then we need to have a level of consensus that bears uh, a solution and then really is implementable in practice. So this involves negotiations on an international basis and then it is a national legislative processes. It needs to be the patience and somewhere in the middle, uh, probably we'll find a way forward. But these discussions need to be had and, and we need to understand each other's needs and, 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 and constraints. So I, I would say a bit more disruption in our long-standing UN processes, then maybe we get to a smooth level later. Just tying into that, when the, the open-ended working group began, there was a lot of discussion of let's not come up with new norms, let's implement the ones we have. And it seems to me that one way you can engage these other stakeholders is to, you know, there's a future in the UN and the open-ended working group and the plan of action or the program of action, whatever else comes forward. But you do have a report now. And I'm just wondering what you think can be done to implement that report, implement the conclusions, even though some of those conclusions are just the you know, the endorsement of prior conclusions, do these groups, you know, for instance, the group, you know, that I help run the global forum on cyber expertise will certainly take up the banner of capacity building, which we already have and try to build on what's in the report. But, but are there, are there other ways to take this forward and, and put some meat around this idea of implementing norms, which was always kind of a nebulous concept in those discussions? Uh, you know, how do you think that that should move forward within the UN, but also outside the UN? You know, it is a, it's a complicated matter, not just in ICTs, you know, uh, norms these days, international norm setting and implementation. I think capacity building is the key at this point uh, because it's so complicated to find consensus on norm development and because we are still relatively bad on, on norm implementation. You know, we don't to really give ourselves instruments to deal with non-compliance. There is, of course, link to that in the in this issue we're talking about is the whole um, identifying responsibility for... Accountability? Account no, one before. Wait, okay. Need, uh, Attribution. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so all of this is, is very complicated. Ideally, uh, I think we would have better instruments. We would have instruments for attribution. We would define accountability and we probably need instruments also for, for measures. And, and, but that's very complicated. So I would, for the time being, I would very much focus on capacity building. Try to really equip national, regional level structures to be able to develop policies but then take into account what we identified in this report as the framework recommendations beyond that. I think that should be the focus for the time being. Not, not, I'm not meaning to abandon the other discussion, but I think that the best return on investment at this point we get on a capacity building. This is a bit like a graduate exam because we're bouncing you all over with various questions. You're doing quite well. So <laughs> the one thing that, that always was difficult for me in thinking how to conceptualize it was the link that you heard from many, many countries between the SDGs and development and the cybersecurity issues. So that's a difficult one. And it's still for much of the world, 
you know, I remember a, a African diplomat telling me, don't, don't tell me about arms control, tell me about development. What, what would you say to that? I don't find it that hard, to be honest. You know, the, the way I understood the, the 2030 agenda, the SDG, it was also a reconfirmation. It's not, it's not new, you know, that the, this, the fact or the, the, the belief that you can't have just development if you don't make sure that you have peace and security and you don't respect the rule of law and the human rights. It has to go all together. You can't focus only on the one. Uh, the whole approach of the SDGs is you can't, uh, you, you need to have progress on all fronts, on all the 17 targets. And, and in, in this sense, I think our discussions we had about cybersecurity fits right in. You can't have progress on development if you don't look after your cybersecurity. And there's many practical examples why that is so and in reality already. Uh, human rights, of course, are also linked into this. So it, I didn't have that problem that much. I, uh, I, to the contrary, I, I feel this is one again one part of a bigger puzzle. If we don't cover this basis, we will not. We will be hindered in progress in other areas. But there was some pushback. I mean, a, a lot of folks were trying to get into the consensus report, the idea that cyber security capacity building, which you mentioned, should be like an underlying foundational part of the development goals in, in some countries. I think we're afraid that that would take away from the focus on those development goals. I didn't see that convergence. And, and as Jim said, I think it's important to see that convergence because that's really where the attention is, where the money is in cybersecurity is often an orphan in these things. They don't get enough resources. Do you think that that's a, a bridge that can be gapped? Were those oppositions just not really understanding how this worked or were they more substantively based? Yeah, sometimes it's I uh, have understanding also for where they come from. You know, they sometimes they are concerned uh, really that national parties are different. You know, we we have our biggest gaps there, and if you talk so much about the other resources are going to go away, and that's a that's a concern, and I find that understandable. Or or they are concerned with uh, we lose the focus on this one. That was also I think. Uh, can yeah. be an honest concern and uh, talk about cybersecurity, but you talk about many, many other issues. We're not focused enough on cybersecurity. Okay. I, I find both of these concerns in a way understandable, but I like to think we found a, a fair balance in the report in, in, in the outcome where we have both. It's a clear focus on the issue, but we make references to the, to the wider context and to, and to the linkages of the two issues. So you didn't deal with this a, a lot in the report for obvious reasons, but there is the flip side of agreeing on rules of the road and international law, which is the idea of accountability, which you mentioned. Is there a way to achieve that without, let's assume we have attribution, let's put that issue, that gnarly issue aside for a second. Is there a way to achieve that, to hold bad actors accountable without making such the situation worse or more escalatory? Do you think that that, I mean, that's certainly something that a lot of people said, look, it's great the UN is talking about all these rules, but if no one pays attention to them, it's just words on paper. So how do you, how do you get to that next level without, with making everyone safer rather than worse off? You know, I've heard you in another context ask this question, and I, I've been thinking about this, and I don't have to answer it. Um, because, you know, we, um, we've been discussing this about accountability in the international area for for quite a while there was a high point in the late 90s you know with the introduction uh, of the international criminal tribunals first and then the permanent court which you were involved with, in a little bit but. yeah well, and 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 i was part of that crowd you know we were 
super enthusiastic about it. And, and I still believe in the idea. I still believe if you have laws, you need to implement them and you need to find instruments to assure accountability. But we've also found out since that things are very complicated <laughs> and there's there has quite a bit of backlash. And, and I, th I thought you put it very well. I can't remember in which context I heard you say that, but we need to push for progress on this front to remain credible. I think, you know, if you, if you don't implement the laws, ultimately you put everything into question, including the Charter of the United Nations, but you want to do it in a way that is, that avoids um, escalation of of of, of, of conflict because uh, you 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 can't have it. Uh, I think at any price you need to be realistic and reasonable. And what the exact solution is to that, uh, um, I, I don't know. I think we we, we should in all, in all areas try to push the agenda or point out why it's why it's important. You know, it's it's interesting that you know people who completely understand that you need rule of law in the commercial area because you can't do business without that have difficulties understanding why you should push uh, a human rights agenda, for instance, and accountability uh, there. I, I see links. You are promoting, you are pushing for a, a rules-based approach or not. And then when you start making compromises, at, at one point it goes to the substance and, and then you're in trouble. But in, in the reality, in the political reality, in, in, in the reality on the ground, how you push the agenda, how you defend it, how you improve it, that's uh, maybe more retail diplomacy, isn't it? Yeah, I think escalation is a bit of a, a boogeyman uh, that our opponents exploit. And I'm speaking now from an American perspective. And so perhaps thinking about that, one thing I've noticed is there's a strong difference between the views of the few large countries, perhaps three or four, uh, on how to approach cyber issues and what I call the many smaller countries or less powerful countries. And what would the balance be? I, I'll say that there are things that the United States will not accept uh, because it would directly affect our security. It would be nice to have accountability, but in the absence of accountability, what do you think the balance is between large state and small state? Where would you, where would you tell small states to put their efforts and I don't mean that in a derogatory fashion. I mean, they can be economically very powerful, but the concerns of bigger states are different. Where would you tell small states to go? You know, I, I think that maybe the power just shifted a little bit with the open-ended working group that mm. uh, now we have 193. Not all of them participate, but all can. And if you are a smaller country and small is almost everybody compared to the really big ones, if you're a smaller one, I think your interest in processes that are really rules-based, that they have clear structures, and, and produce this a framework where you are protected, under which you're protected, that you are very interested in something like that. So my advice is to engage, to engage in these kind of processes and make sure that uh, it produces the results. And then I think there is power in numbers uh, or strength in numbers. So what next for Ambassador Jörg Lauber? What's, uh, you know, are you going to leave the cyber world behind and in the dust? Are you going to new adventures? What's uh... No, I mean, this issue is way too interesting. And, and also it's it's all over the place. I mean, cybersecurity, of course, is one, but then it's, it's everywhere. And I, I'm now fully back to my day job, as uh, Jim said, I'm representing Switzerland in Geneva. 
And it turns out that uh, you know this as well as I do, that Geneva is actually a fairly interesting place because uh, a lot of disarmament issues are, are, are in Geneva. Uh, but there's also, over the last few years, we've seen quite the development, uh, many organizations, smaller outfits, being developed uh, here, dealing with cyber technology, digital issues, uh, digital government issues. So I'm I'm excited to you to bring the experience I, I made now uh, over these last two years uh, to Geneva and to continue that and, and make sure that Geneva is a is a place where where things happen that contribute to the discussion and hopefully uh, to to better approaches and better solutions. So no, I'm, I'm I'm I won't be a part of the next open-ended working group, but I will very much be a part of this whole uh, cyber digital discussion. That might be a good note to end on. So we could, of course, keep you on the spot for at least another hour. That's it's fine, you know. It's and I just can I on a personal note is you know one of the biggest things in such processes is the people you meet and and. I, I was lucky to meet so many great people and you guys included and so many others. You mentioned some of the names, uh, Jim, colleagues who were part of this group. And it was also on a personal level. It was a really exciting experience. And, and I, I, I don't, in spite of some almost sleepless nights and, 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 and nerve, nerve, I don't regret anything. Well, we, we look forward to seeing you and working with you in the future. So it was great. Yeah. Drop me a line when you're in Geneva. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of the Cybersecurity Agency of Singapore and the Estonian Ministry of Foreign Affairs.